We live in a world where crime is ordinary, but in the world that ought to be, crime is never excused. The FBI needs experts from all backgrounds to create the world that ought to be. Visit fbijobs.gov forward slash radio. Are you ready? Let's make some noise. Come on. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest edition of the Broad Street Line. I am Roy Burton alongside me, as always, my tag team partner, as always during the pandemic, Mr. Domingo, air quotes, Saturday morning, sir. How are you doing? Man? Roy, I'm doing Roy, I'm doing great today. And usually we like to play like a like a two-man game. Like I don't know, like you're usually given the screen, but we mm-hmm. had to get ourselves someone who actually knows ball. Because we always joke that we know ball, but literally yeah. this man has written about ball. For, and and it really is like like it really does provide some insight that I didn't know and I thought I knew everything about like I don't know the the tanking era so to speak yeah no 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 you are you are um you are I guess I guess you're probably the Michael Carter Williams I'm the Dwayne Deadman <laughs> but, but but we need somebody in the pivot who can actually put the ball in the basket who can score some buckets so joining us on the show today um is the author of the amazing new book Built to lose how the nba's tanking era changed the league forever this book is available wherever books are sold and as we're recording this interview this book is number one on amazon in the cleveland ohio travel books category i have no idea why (laughs) shout out to my good friend jake fisher the pride of cherry hill east jake how's it going man thank you man for having me thank you for the introduction I, i i can tell you why it's travel books for whatever reason when my publisher tags all the cities that are going to be mentioned in the book mm-hmm. that's how it worked out but we were number one in sports industry as of last night we were okay. of moneyball so take that michael lewis ooh ooh beating out michael lewis for moneyball that's a beautiful that's a beautiful so it wasn't those endless chris grant uh references in the book like i, yeah. I mean or like no i mean like it, it, like and it, it like we'll talk about it but i feel like it was a lifetime ago when these guys like like Rob Hennigan, Ryan McDonough, Chris Grant, like and, right. and of course our, our own Sam Hinkie were were running the teams. And I, I mean like it really is fascinating to see how owners just try to I guess take advantage of that market inefficiency, I guess. Yeah, I mean we're at the point now. It started then, but we're at the point now where if you're not competing for a title there's really no benefit to being in the middle of, of the NBA. And at a certain point now, we're seeing it with OKC and Detroit and Houston and Orlando again, even though the magic, like you mentioned with Rob Hennigan, they're a big part of the book. They're doing it all over again. Mm-hmm. It, it really swept the NBA as these analytical-minded executives came to power and realized that the best way to compete for a title is to have multiple all-stars. And the easiest path to get them is at the top of the draft. 
And that 2014 class that started that started Joel Embiid now, but at the time, you know, Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker, they were considered bigger than Embiid to start that college basketball season. And it was a seven-player draft <laughs> down to Julius Randle at number seven to the Lakers, who, mm-hmm. you know, is now an MVP candidate with the Knicks. So all these analytical-minded GMs thought, instead of competing with Miami, who's got three top five guys who were in that 03 class, let's punt a couple years Let's collect the next generation of stars who, you know, are going to be in the best class since 2003. And by the time they're, you know, in their pro- at the backstage of their prime, will rise to power, which really did come to fruition for the Sixers. And Phoenix didn't think it'd be Devin Booker, but here they are. And Boston obviously has fallen off a bit of late, but they made the conference finals multiple years. So the strategy clearly had its dividends. I do want to ask you about that specifically later, but I, I, I do obviously want to talk about the book and the Sixers focus of the book, because, you know, for many reasons that, that we'll get to in, in a moment, your book is heavy on Sixers content. And you even reference incidents that, you know, insiders like, you know, like us, like Liberty Ballers guys and people on the message boards probably only remember like the whole Evan Turner media day thing, uh, which is pretty <laughs> hilarious. Um, did you ever think that was there any point in the, in the process where you, you considered writing the book solely about the Sixers and the Sam Hinkie era? I did. That was how the idea started, to be fully candid. And uh, the publishing industry is a beast and unto itself. And um, through by hook and by crook, we had to alter it out. But I- I'm I'm really happy with the finished product. I think it really does cover Philly super thoroughly. It, it doesn't. It introduces Brian Colangelo coming in at the end of uh, the 2015-16 season. That doesn't go into the whole Colangelo Mark Fultz fiasco, but. I really think we cover Hinky's two and a half, three years super thoroughly while also pivoting around to talk about old Kobe's Lakers and the Celtics that we mentioned before. And there's some crazy DeMarcus Cousins, Vivek Ranadive, Kings drama, um, some really interesting stuff with the Phoenix Suns. We go around to Milwaukee and Cleveland and Minnesota. Like I cover the NBA at large, you know, so it was mm-hmm. really fun to pivot around and um, I kind of call it like a Game of Thrones of losing, which is <laughs> uh, pretty fun. And, and of course, you get, again, you know, the, the Kings are, I guess, one of the Kings of, of that losing uh, were those early Sixers teams, you know, during the time where we, we refer to as the process. And during that time, you know, you were a writer for Liberty Ballers, as, as was I. And look, I got to, you know, you, you, you're being candid on this show. So I'm going to ask you another question. I don't want you to be candid. Yeah. In real in real time, you know, when we were doing recaps, you know, for 22 point losses to the Orlando Magic in, in April. Did you enjoy that, it? Guys. <laughs> Did, did you enjoy it, Jake? Because, I mean, like, because it was some bad basketball. Yeah, I mean, I remember at the end of that 13-14 season, there was some loss to Sacramento, and I was on the recap duty and thinking, like, they're going to lose 33 straight games to let end the year. Like, I made that prediction I, I, in my recap, and it definitely blew up a little bit in Sixers fan community on Twitter and whatnot. Like, people were like, no, they're bad, but they're not that bad. I kind of did find some fun in, like, it was kind of a, a clown show at a certain point. Um, mm-hmm. Not in terms of like behind the scenes at that time. Like yeah, there was some Nerlens crazy stuff going on where he was hurt and showing up late and the plane, you know, didn't take off on time on, on numerous occasions. And they were trying to find him to keep his, his, you know, behavior for the lack of the better word in check. And um, there's this great scene in the book, Brandon Davies told me about it. A couple of people did too, where Nerland just walks in and swipes the pink slips off his chair. doesn't even care that he got fined like 50 grand. But I mean, to see like these young kids kind of like rumbling and stumbling and learning how to walk in real time was kind of fun. I thought. Uh, all yeah, right. Now, well, oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, no, sorry, sorry. Oh, no. Um, 
I noticed that, like, I don't know, like, you kind of, like, stated it in your introductory where, like, a young and Jake kind of stood in the middle with the whole tanking or, or, or purposely losing. You're like, like, in the same breath, you get, like, you get the method. But in this, but there's also, I feel like, and this was my, like, I don't know, like, angst with it as a, as a lifelong basketball fan was the human element. And I mm-hmm. think that, like, I, I think, I, I don't want to take this, like, say it completely, but putting your faith in 19-year-old kids. And, and like you said, that Nerland story. I, I mean, like, you've given a 19-year-old kid ultimate autonomy to kind of, like, I don't know, like, I don't know. He has he has the fate of your franchise in his hands. And for me, that's always been kind of, like, I don't know, an uneasy feeling. Absolutely. And, I mean, look at it right now where David Griffin is going out and making a ludicrous comment about Zion breaking his finger on a rebound and crediting that to him getting fouled, willing to get fined $50,000, which to me is a clear public stunt to show Zion, like, I'm here to support you, man. And Zion's 20 years old in the second year of his career. Like, sure, he's a generational force like you've seen so far, but, like, he's just a kid. And this grown man is getting paid fifty thousand, getting fined fifty thousand dollars just to cater to him. Like it's a precarious situation, especially when the clock is immediately ticking. The second you take these guys, you're only guaranteed to have them in your facility for seven years, and 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 that could even become more precarious. They could say no. They could go out and take their qualifying offer. No one's ever done that, but there's been you know rumors like oh maybe Ben Simmons would think about that back in the day and other situations like. Even though as much as you're drafting these guys on the promise of what they can one do they do for your franchise, there's A, no guarantee they'll turn out like Michael Carter-Williams, like New Orleans, like Jalil like Okafor. There's also no guarantee that they'll stick around like James Harden and OKC and then Houston thereafter. So it's really, really precarious that you have to be do everything to get these guys. Then you have to do everything to keep them and build around them and they can walk out the door no matter what. And that's that's one of the questions I kind of wanted to to get to later on. We're talking to Jake Fisher, author of the new book, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Because again, we have the the teams that we'll call it tanking and you know have or, or you know trying to you know trying to uh, better their draft position, let's say. And you know, you had the Sixers and the Magic and the Kings and a bunch of teams that you touched on in the book, um, the Suns and the Celtics. Um they see various different types of these rebuilds, but again, by and large, they haven't been successful. So would you say that's the right blueprint to build a team or is there a better way to do it? Yeah, I I call the book as much as I said it was Game of Thrones of losing earlier. Like I think it's an anecdotal history of a bunch of different case studies of modern team building. So Philly was the most brazen, bald, audacious example. Boston, they, they traded KG and Paul Pierce the same night that Sam Hankey traded Drew Holiday and Erlens Noel, or traded Drew Holiday for Erlens Noel and started that rebuild, but across the way, the Lakers, who were battling the Celtics in those finals from 08 and 10, they refused to move on. They did not want to rebuild. They wanted to keep old Kobe and trade for Steve Nash and trade for Dwight Howard, and they still ended up being bad and still ended up being worse than Phileas in certain circumstances. So there's different ways to do it, and that's kind of why I wanted to do the book the way I did, to compare and contrast through all these anecdotes and scenes and whatnot to show that, Team building is hard for, for a lot of reasons, but mostly because there's so many unforeseen variables that come into play, where whether it's conflicting personalities or, you know, a guy gets hurt. 
or if you're, you know, the Atlanta Hawks, for example, the, in the beginning of the book, they're doing everything they can to get Giannis Antetokounmpo. They're flying him in under cloak and dagger, and Danny Ferry, the GM, is hosting oh. him in his house and having dinner with um, him and his kids at his kitchen table. But, like, they can't trade up high enough to get him, and he's gone. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's – I think – well, what ultimately team building comes down to is mitigating as many of those unforeseen variables as you can and pivoting when you have to. And that's, you know, like Boston, for example, was killing it with Jalen Brown. They tank and get Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. They, they, they go in free agency and get Al Horford and um, Gordon Hayward. They trade for Kyrie. And sure enough, they're fumbling down the standings, and here they are right back again. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's so difficult, and that's why I think tanking became a thing. You can at least make a narrow path of we're going to be bad here. You get a chance at this guy, and we have hope now. We've got a couple years here where there's no expectations. Maybe we'll become something one day. Right. But yeah, the clock keeps ticking. The clock the, the clock does start ticking at a certain point, and it starts all over again. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, Jake, you mentioned like the Celtics, and I I feel like across like the NBA like fans, they were the they were the model on, like, I don't know, get two stars, get the right free agents. But you said, like, I don't know, like a couple bad moves and a, and a, and a bad draft. And, like, they, I feel like they're, like, they're trending downwards. And I feel like with the Sixers, like, they're in this spot where they really should have been. Like, last offseason should have been, like, and history says that you don't get a second chance to kind of run through this. And somehow they got it. Like, I, I mean, like, what is so spe- – like – I mean, I know the uniqueness of it, but what is so darn different about the Sixers? And I feel like you mentioned, like, I don't know, the the factor of luck that really there's a lot, there's almost a lot of luck as much as skill. Like, I don't know, like the Cavaliers, like you said, getting Kyrie. Like, I I mean, like if if Joel Embiid doesn't, doesn't break his foot in that, in that pre-draft camp, we're not here. Like, Mm -hmm. like maybe Jake's talking about, like, I don't know, like, 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 I don't know, like the super team, but we're not yeah. talking about tanking. Yeah. I, I was just going to give that example. I mean, I think the reason that <clears throat> had, um, you know, margin for error, if you will, is because of how good Embiid is. And just like you mentioned, you know, Cavs officials to this day maintain that Embiid broke his foot in the workout in Cleveland in 2014. And everyone there says he was, we blew them away. It was the best workout everyone there had ever seen. I mean, he had hit 14 straight feet or something like that from the corner. Um, Jordy Fernandez, who was an assistant coach with the Cavs at the time, now is at Denver. Um, he's from Spain originally. He told me, you know, it's really impressive for a guy to show your personality and, like, talk basketball all at once, let alone do it in your second language. And that's what Embiid was doing. You know, he's that type of guy. He's not just a talent. He's, he's the personality that can really – you know, support a whole franchise on his shoulders. And that's really nothing to, to, to sniff at. That's a huge, huge factor in all this. But mm-hmm. the other factor is Milwaukee. You know, Mark Lazary, the Bucks owner, is on record in my book saying we wanted to make the postseason. We were only going to take a player at number two who was going to help us get back to the playoffs. So if Embiid went one, they still were going to take Jabari Parker over Andrew Wiggins because he was considered the more finished product. So when Embiid falls to them at two and they're sitting there deciding between Joel and Jabari Parker. And remember the Bucks had Luke Umba Mute at the time who mm-hmm. discovered Joel in, in Cameroon. He got them to have a, a dinner meeting with Joel in LA, which, you know, 
that was probably not going to happen without Luke Mbamute. Right. But they still took Corey <clears throat> Parker because they wanted to make the playoffs. And Embiid is sitting there pretty for Philly at number three. And he still breaks his foot again before the 2015-16 season. <laughs> and he's partially, that's partially why Sam Hinkie's no longer in the NBA. Like, if he's still healthy, you know, maybe that maybe he has that great rookie year in 15-16 and they don't take Jalil Okafor because I some people told me with the team, part of the calculus behind taking Okafor at three was potentially to make up for the mistake of taking Embiid the year before. So there's so many things like that that are riddled throughout NBA history, especially this Philly team of the last you know decade. So, so the Eagles were the quarterback factory. The Sixers, you're saying, were the center factory back back in the days. Is that is that what we're saying? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> when you really think about it, the Andrew Bynum fiasco is what starts this whole process era to begin with. They right. take Merlins in 2013. They take jo- Joel. They take Ja. And I, I do think part of the calculus, aside from making up for uh, Embiid's injury, was also they thought, best case scenario, Embiid becomes this. Ja was going to have this great trade value. Right. Which is just what, you know, uh, uh, how Roseman kind of said about Jalen Hurts with Carson. And sure enough, they trade Carson and Jalen's the starter now. So, yeah, it is pretty similar. <laughs> oh, PTSD, PTSD. No, 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 but I mean, like, it, it really and, – and I think – one of the focal points of the tanking era, obviously, is Sam Hinkie. And he's beloved here for many reasons. But I think what I always struggled with, and obviously I loved Liberty Ballers when y'all were, were, were doing the thing, but his his shortcomings were never really, like, I don't know, discussed. And mm-hmm. and kudos to you for bringing it because, like, I, I mean, there was, like I said previously, there was a human element that I feel like, like, Hinky really treated these guys like like components of an algorithm, and really, you can't operate basketball like that. Can you just like state a little more on like Hinky's, I, I guess, inability to kind of see these people for more than just I don't know, like integers? Yeah, I mean, I think he did see them for their personality and for their background and all that, but as the GM. He definitely tried to separate himself from a lot of players. There were his pet players like Christian Wood and Joel and TJ and Robert Covington that he would have a relationship with. And I think he still texts a lot of those guys like frequently to this day. But I mean, Evan Turner told me this great detail where, you know, Sam walks through the practice facility back at PCOM one day and Evan says, Hey, Sam, we play for the Sixers. <laughs> he was definitely, and people in the front office at that time told me since that he was trying to separate himself from the players a little bit in order to better do his job in terms of maximizing their trade value and, and viewing them as, 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 as pieces on the trade market, which, yeah, maybe that is, you know, difficult and it does, you know, pr- produce some imagery, you know, where now we're calling team owners governors instead of owners, for, you know, for that type of historical context. But at mm-hmm. the same time, it's a business and these guys are being paid millions of dollars. Dwight Powell, to go back to Boston was just kind of chucked into the Rajon Rondo trade when the Celtics moved him to Dallas. Dwight Powell got traded three times in his rookie season. And he told me, like, I know for like I, I know that we get paid millions of dollars partially to be able to pick up at, a, at the drop of a hat and go. So I see both sides of it, but I think what Sam's shortcomings in, in that regard really blew up in his face were his negotiations with agents and other teams like there's a whole detail 
with Andre Karolinko, where they trade for for um, him from Brooklyn and and the Nets. You know, Billy King, I talked to former Sixers GM who was then running Brooklyn at the time, said that Sam said they were just going to cut Andre, let him become a free agent, but then. Pinky and Brett were like adamant on Andre reporting to Philly, even though he had a, a wife who was really having a difficult pregnancy in New York, and he did not mm-hmm. want to re- relocate her and have her work with new doctors. And they started fining him for not reporting. They ultimately had to go to arbitration with the players union. So things like that definitely rub a lot of uh, fellow rival front office people and agents the, the wrong way. And people still harbor that resentment and certain that Andre Karolinko's agent, I, I, I believe is Mark Fleischer. There's two Fleischers, Eric and Mark Fleischer. I think it was Mark. He still is like, you know, Sam conducted himself like he was the smartest guy in the room and maybe he was, but if you are, you probably shouldn't let other people think that you think that. <laughs> That's a very good point. Uh, we're talking with Jake Fisher, writer for Bleacher Report and author of Built to Lose, how the NBA's tanking era changed the league forever, available from Triumph Books and wherever books are sold. Um, let's keep let's keep the conversation on, on Sam Hinkie. Um, and again, I, I think I, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm, I'm going to ask you just straight out. Based on based on what you know about him and based on the, stu- the stories that you just kind of just told us with, with that, are you surprised that Sam Hinkie's not in somebody's front office right now? I'm not surprised, which okay. I think is the answer you were expecting. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, you don't be, you, you're not able to set to set off on a plan like he did without full ownership approval, and um, he thought he had it. I mean, I, he wrote in his resignation letter something along the lines of, you know, I don't, I no longer believe I have uh, your full confidence in doing this, and I mean, that's why I think we won't see him back in the NBA. There are very few situations like Danny Ainge in Boston or Pat Riley in Miami, or R.C. Buford in San Antonio. You know, maybe Denver with Tim Connolly with the success they've had. And I know him and uh, Josh Conker are pretty close. Maybe that's a new situation. But uh, there are very few in the league where ownership and management are very much on the same page and partners and whatever. And the fact that he thought he had that type of situation and the rug got pulled out from under him, I don't think he'll ever trust an ownership group ever again. Mm -hmm. That's why he's running his own venture capital fund in the Bay Area and making his forays into the tech sector and all that stuff. That's, now, that's, uh, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Right now. Now, Jake, even with just the recent, I don't know, almost, I don't say as blatant. I, I mean, no one started Chris Johnson to start their season, but I mean, like with, with Houston and, and like you said, OKC, I, I mean, OKC is blatantly tanking. And I don't, and, yeah. And like, I don't. I mean, they decided to just sit out Horford for the rest of the season, which yeah. I don't know is just a market thing where it's OKC and no one's really noticing. But even with just the added examples of tanking, is the NBA like even if he were willing to come, is the NBA ready for Sam Inky again? Like I, I, I feel like it's just that, like it's that state. I don't say stain. I mean, like he was just the innovator of it, and tanking has been going on for thirty years. And it's just, I think he was just the first one to say, to put it out there. And will that putting it out there just keep him out of those NBA circles? Yeah, there's an interesting through line where David Stern, when he first came out in as, as commissioner in 1984, that first season, the Houston Rockets, they lost um, 16 of their final 21 games to get Hakeem Olajuwon. And <laughs> Patrick that- Ewing. I mean, Pat, like the Knicks flat out, like, I don't know, like, that's why David Stern invented the lottery because yeah. he didn't want another Hakeem Olajuwon thing. And the very first year, that frozen envelope happens, and that's <laughs> the Knicks. And you flash forward thirty years later, 
Adam Silver's first year as commissioner, he inherits Sam Hinkie. So that's pretty <laughs> fast. Especially when you consider that the Rockets tanked below the San Diego Clippers, who their pick was owed by owned by the Sixers. And right. they that's the pick that they ended up taking Charles Barkley with at five. If the Rockets don't do that, maybe Philly gets into the coin flip at the time. There was a coin flip between the worst team in the East and the worst team in the West to decide that number one pick. Maybe Philly ends up with Michael Jordan. So <laughs> it's really interesting that you mentioned that. But to, to, to answer your question, I think the league really cared that it was a narrative and it was a headline on SportsCenter and that 15-16 Sixers team that flirted with being the worst team ever. They were stealing storylines and airtime <laughs> yeah. the Warriors who were marching on to literally be the best team of all time. Yeah. And the fact that it was a talking point and Sam was you know, not shying away from it, um, I think the league is happy now that they passed reform and, and that 2019 draft, the first year where the three teams have 14% odds at the number one pick instead of the worst team with 25%. The Knicks were tanking for Zion, tanking for Zion, which again, this theory, this, this, this theme of all the history, like they don't get like the Patrick Ewing frozen envelope is the cause for all the lottery, um, theories and speculation throughout history. The Knicks don't get Zion. And now it's, oh, well, auto reform worked. Tanking is over. But OKC sending Al Horford home and Houston just resting John Wall on their bench, perfectly healthy, sitting there watching Kevin Porter Jr. and the other young guys go to work. That was something Hinky was never doing. Like the, the teams got worse and worse and worse throughout the year because he would trade away all the guys. But they were never sending veterans home or sitting yeah. them on the bench to intentionally lose games. That's why the book's called Built to Lose. The rosters were constructed <laughs> young and inexperienced guys, but the coaches and the players were trying to win. That's not really what's happening right now. It's it's potentially even worse. Yeah, shout, shout out to Deontay Christmas and Cleef Wyatt again. They're, they're Temple guys. I don't want to I don't want to you know put their names in the mud um, when it comes to that. But I do want to ask I do want to ask you, Jake. So so what's the what's the solution to this? What's the solution to the the the, the race to the bottom? Because even with this playing tournament, again, we still see you know the teams not really trying. Like you said, guys, you know, team sitting guys out. How can the league fix this? Yeah, Mike Zarin, the assistant general manager in Boston, told me that he believes the only way to eliminate tanking. It's to completely separate a, a team's record from their draft positioning. And that would only really be accomplished so far from what we've seen proposed in the wheel scenario that Zarin proposed at a certain point. And it was discussed back in 2014 when the Board of Governors first met to try to change the lottery rules and dissuade teams from following Hinky's path. Um, it, would, it would divide the league between – five and six buckets, depending on how many you want in there. All 30 teams either divided by six or divided by five. You'd still have the lottery. Every year you would do five or six drawings, but you would be up for one through five. And then next year you'd be up through for, for 26 through 30. And then mm. the third year you'd be up for six through 10 and so on and so forth. So there's still a lottery. You still have your TV event. It might actually even be crazier because all 30 teams on one night would find out their draft position and let alone just 14. Um, but that way, you know, you're, you're, it's kind of like Boston. Like Boston was able to compete for the playoffs because they were going to keep getting those Nets picks in the future. Every team then, you know, your draft positioning has literally, if it's not attached to your record at all, if you're on this five-year cycle, right. everyone is going to have incentive to compete. So I think that's the only way to do it. But I think, I think the lottery reform that we have right now is here to stay for at least a couple of years. Yeah, I, I've heard the wheel proposal before. 
And again, like I, I think there needs to be some kind of, or at least less of a tie to your record. But that being said, if you're, you know, 10 and 72 and you wind up with like, the 27th pick, I mean, it's like, all right, well, what, what are we doing here? So I, I don't know. If, I don't know if that's quite the solution either. Um, but it's, it's an interesting solution to this. Um, but before we talk about the book and kind of what goes into the book itself, I do want to ask a question. It's a, very, it's a loaded question, but it's a very short question. Okay. Did the process work? Absolutely. I think the fact that they're the number one team in the East and they're probably going to lock it up. We're recording this on May 11th tonight. And uh, I mean, they have the best player in the conference, I think. Um, right now, being that, you know, Kevin Durant hasn't really been healthy throughout this year, and who knows what any of those guys are going to be able to do doing in the postseason. Um, they've got Ben Simmons. It definitely worked. Sam never had the hubris to say, I'm going to pick an all-star every single time I pick in the top five. He wanted a lot of darts to throw at that dartboard, and they hit twice. And that was the, that was the whole strategy. History and the, the, the numbers show most NBA teams who win the title have – two all-stars at a minimum on their on their roster. Mm-hmm. The Sixers have at least two right now. You can make an argument with, with Tobias Harris like Daryl Morey did all year long. So yeah, it worked. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that because I, I guess my my thought is that if this team, you know, they have a couple of all-stars, if this team never makes an NBA finals, you know, doesn't obviously doesn't win a championship. I don't know if that's – well, I don't know if Sam Hinkie would call that success. But, again, you know Sam Hinkie better than me. So, I guess let me turn this question around and ask you this way. If you were to ask Sam Hinkie if the process was successful, what would he tell you today? I think he'd say that he obviously wish he had the opportunity to see it through. Mm-hmm. Well, I think he would also say that anyone saying, you know, we're going to win the title this year is, is, is speaking a little out of turn. Like the goal in the NBA for the top contending teams is not to win the championship. It's to put yourself in the conversation to win the championship. Mm-hmm. Errol Morey says that every single year there's five-ish teams that have a 5% chance to win it. That's a very, very low percentage. Yeah. That's considered a high percentage. So, you know, injuries come into play. You know, certain matchups come into play. A guy just, you know, maybe there's an off-court issue that's plaguing him on the court. You know, the the, two, the Raptors won it in 2019. No discredit to them. But, you know, Kevin Durant tore his Achilles in the finals. That, that definitely helped. So I think as, as long as, you know, they're in the legitimate conversation and they have a chance year after year after year, that was the goal. The goal wasn't to create a team that had a shot one time at it. It was to create a perennial contender. And I think they have that right now. Now, um, I guess for like, like – you've been covering basketball for a long time and you worked at SI and like, like has your opinion about tanking changed through your, through all your research and all your interviews? Has it, I would say drastically changed, but has it changed to one side or the other or like what new, like what new wisdom can you impart on people that are pro tanking or anti tanking like your dad? Yeah. I can't remember (laughs) if if I've said the number yet, but just because, because I've done a lot of these, but, if we haven't said it yet, you mentioned a lot of interviews. I talked to over 300 people for the book. So it's given, you know, there's a ton of new details and new scenes and stories that you're not going to find anywhere else. Um, but I, I think um, what, what I've learned from that process is that it's really difficult to do and pull off. Um, it's very difficult to steer a ship around and go from losing intentionally to, to, you know, competing for a title and living and dying with every outcome. Um, but 
I think the ultimate thing is that there literally is no other alternative for a lot of these small market teams. Like we're like we talked at the top or a couple minutes ago, OKC, Houston, Detroit, Orlando, they're all doing it right now. There's going to be more teams to do it. And it's just, it really goes to show how powerful and, and how important having an all-star or a superstar is in this NBA. And that's what the game has really become. The NBA is about chasing superstars. And it's it's kind of a, almost for, overshadowed the actual games, like the team building, the big game hunting. Where's Bradley Beal going to go? Oh, Damian Lillard's a little frustrated. Is he going to go to the Knicks? Like that type of stuff has kind of, I think, you know, surpassed the actual games at a certain point. And I, I, I wonder if there's ever even a point of turning it back. Which I think is not good for the long-term health of the league. Like, I, I mean, like, I, I always, I felt like in the last five years, like even, even like when the, when the heat were hot, were hot, the games felt like they mattered more, but now it's, it's very transactional. It's like, let's wait till July the 1st to see, like, I don't know, like, let's like, I don't know, put all our notifications in on Woj and Shams. Like, I, like, like I, I guess, like, and 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 you love hoops as much as everyone. It, it is like, do you think there's no turning back from that? Like, do you think this will just keep going to being all about rumors and transactions? Yeah, I mean, I was reading every article, um, listening to the early days of podcasting when I was younger, um, and I, I don't remember when I was just a fan the conversation being so mainstream about building and roster construction and the strategy behind you know, organizational strategy wasn't really being talked about. And then Twitter came around and we've streamlined the conversation. And, you know, I saw our buddy, you know, we talk about Liberty Ballers right before we logged on. I saw our buddy, Mike Levin tweet at Daryl Moore and Daryl Moore responds right back. <laughs> that's, that's rare. Not every GM is doing that, but the fact that that is out there, you know, executives and coaches talk about the pressure they feel to win every single trade and everyone is all already, you know, I, I think a lot of teams were strategizing two years, three years down the line beforehand, but it's, it's now everyone's doing it and you're considered to be bad at your job if you're not. So if the, if the GMs and the coaches are doing it, so it's so aggressively, we're talking about it every single, every single year, every single, you know, when, the Nuggets trade for Aaron Gordon, you know, part of the evaluation of that deal, again, the instant reaction, having to win the trade, part of the evaluation is, well, Aaron Gordon's contract expires at the end of the 2022 season, right on time with Michael Porter Jr., and it gives the Nuggets a year and a half to evaluate their roster moving forward. Like, those conversations were having among some smart teams back then, mm-hmm. but now every team is having them, and all the fans are talking about it. So with that, to, to, that's my long answer to say – the, the cat's out of the bag. Pandora's box is open. Like, we are there, and it's, it's never going away. No, but just to call myself out, I'm guilty of this. And I thought I – like, I mean, I felt like – because it's always you feel like – like, I don't know, like, personally, I always felt that the Sixers would peak with this with this roster. And, and maybe they will, maybe they won't. But sometimes when I see a guy having a bad stretch, I'm like, who can we trade this guy for? And I'm like – Darn it, that's not how I was raised. Yeah. I mean, I covered the league for a living, and I, I played one-on-one with my roommate at the park this morning. I'm a hoop head, but I can't tell you the last time I, I sat down and watched a full game this year. It was weeks ago. I mean, that's also partially because I'm doing book promos and whatnot, but, like, I can do my job pretty well by just checking in the 10-minute YouTube highlights in the morning and calling around the league and – getting my little reported thing for Bleacher Report every week and moving on. So 
I'm sure, you know, for the paying customer, that's not great for the league. And it has, it's a conundrum. It is mm-hmm. on one hand, super, super beneficial for them to have moved into this 11th month news cycle type thing, just like the NFL, where the, ten, the transaction game and free agency is just as big a deal as the games. But I don't, I think we're at a point with the NBA where that stuff is bigger than the games and that's an issue and ratings are down. It's just an objective. It's a fact. And they're going to have to figure out a way. I mean, I know the midseason tournament thing has been pitched around the league office for a while. I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're at we're at the point now where um, they're going to have to do something to, to to reinvigorate what these games mean in March and April. Just just to kind of you know put a bow on this this topic, do you think your your personal you know feelings about this would be different if you weren't so tied to the league if you weren't so close to the players and the coaches and and the, the GMs if you were just again you know Jake fan you know just watching the games you know in, like in New York do you think you'd have more of a connection to to the league than you do now as a fan I don't know I mean maybe it's pandemic related but um the it's not, it's not. <laughs> not because I because I oh sorry Jake cuz I felt in the last couple of years that the cuz I've bought league pass like every other hoop head. And like, I would have no problem watching Kings. Like, I don't know, Grizzlies on, on a Tuesday. I can't watch, I can barely watch net bucks. Like, yeah. I, I mean, and like, it, and, and like you said, it, it goes back to bringing back the meaningfulness of the regular season. I don't know whether it's like, I don't know, reducing the season a little bit and kind of like, I don't know, you can force players not to miss time, but I, I mean, how many times were we, Hype about a Nets Sixers game, and then three hours before tip, Kyrie is an Kyrie out, Harden out. Like I mean, as a fan, like I don't cover the NBA, but that kind of stunk. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult, and I mean they can't do anything to to force these guys to play. Clearly, that was a whole top. It was a whole talking point at the end of the eighteen nineteen season, and you know now Al Horford's at home with his feet up on, on the couch. <laughs> Clearly, they can't do anything uh, to stop that. It's, I mean, I, I love watching. I, I can watch Kings Grizzlies uh, every night in the first couple months of the year when I'm trying to figure out and, and watch guys. And then around the deadline, you know, I want to see what new iterations of lineups look like. But then at a certain point, it's like <laughs> I, I know what Philly looks like. I know what Brooklyn looks like. I know what right. Milwaukee looks like. It's just get me to the playoffs already. So because like the Knicks, I, I live in Brooklyn. The Knicks are, I can't escape the Knicks wherever I go. If I, if I meet someone out or if, you know someone finds out I cover the NBA, you have it. Like they want to know if I think RJ Barrett can be the best player on a championship team. That type. Of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just at a certain point, like I just want to see if if it's going to work in the post. Like the Knicks are a great story, we get it, but like, right. will they actually work if they you know get swept in the first round by the the fifth seed? Like, all this Knicks hype momentum is like completely going to fall out. So that's all the thing. Like that's going to then set the course for all those off season theatrics that we've been talking about before. So it's just it's it's a beast. It's a vicious cycle. It just keeps on going. We're talking with Jake Fisher, author of the new book, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Let's let's stop bagging on the NBA for a second. <laughs> I want I want you to, to put on your reporter hat for for a minute. Um, just in general, again, as a reporter, as someone who, like you said, conducted you know 300 interviews for this book, you've written for Bleach Report and SI and Slam and, and all sorts of good stuff. Um, is it difficult? And you write a, you kind of allude to this in the introduction about Sam Hankey. Does it become more difficult as you you know kind of you know 
gain your legs and gain gain more experience as a reporter to be objective about the teams and the players that, that you cover? I found it only easier to be more objective. Like okay. I, don't, I don't root for the Sixers at all anymore. I mean, right now it'd be kind of good if they won the title because I'm trying to sell a book about them. <laughs> but it's it's definitely like I, I tell this story to people a lot. Um, I um, I took a bus down to Philly January 2020, right before the pandemic pandemic happened, and I was there only to talk to D'Angelo Russell. Put up to Drexel that. That night before, the Warriors had a, a shoot-around, and it was the day after Kobe died, and D'Angelo didn't want to talk. So then I went to the game, and he wasn't going to talk pregame. So I'm sitting there all game long waiting to talk to D'Angelo Russell, which, I mean, I got a free ticket to the game. I got to hang out with NBA players. It's not that big a deal. But, like, it's my job, and I came down from New York and spent a lot of hours and like to talk to one guy. So mm-hmm. he better play well in that game. Mm-hmm. Even better if the Warriors won. Like, I don't care – who wins the game as much as like I'm rooting for the best outcome for what I'm working on. But in terms of objectivity around like talking to people, yeah. Like, you know, if I write about Portland for Bleacher Report a couple weeks ago about, you know, Damian Lillard and hearing some things about how they've been trying to maximize him and, you know, Neil O'Shea apparently asked Dame to give him a list of players to go get. And like, I know some people in Portland and like, I can't write that story without calling them. And sometimes it's difficult. And I wrote a big thing on the Pacers and Nate Bjorker in last week that, you know, Nick Nurse goes publicly and says and denies it all. And now a lot of people on Twitter are saying I'm fake news and that <laughs> I, I, I made it up and I'm, you know, not credible. But, like, I wrote something that's pretty damning about Nick Nurse's organization. Like, obviously, he's going to deny it. So right. that, 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 that does get treacherous sometimes, especially when you're writing about things that aren't, you know, all happy, dandy, and, and, and all sunshine and rainbows. Like, that is the flip side of this. Like, when you do have this access, like, your editor wants you sometimes to poke around for some dirt. And um, I don't love doing that. Like, I, I want everyone to be successful, and I want to write more fun human interest stories and talk about just interesting stuff, not necessarily, like, shining a magnifying glass on some people, but um, it's, it, it comes to the territory, unfortunately. That was a very informative piece, by the way, on Nurse. Well, no, like I like like usually because I, I mean, like I scoured the internet, like everyone, and I think I know everything. But like, I was a very like I had like I kind of thought that that whole organization was like sunshines and sunshine and rainbows. But like, I, I mean, obviously, no. Like, it, it's really going to be interesting to see, like, because sorry to get off the topic of Sixers, but I mean, like, I always felt like the Raptors were kind of like I don't know, like sustainable. But I feel like this season, Larry gone, Siakam maybe not as good as we thought or everyone thought. Like, I don't know. That's kind of a tenuous situation there. And Masai Ujiri has very notably not signed a new contract there. So, yeah, I mean, that, that that's why I think the NBA covering it is so interesting. I really – I'd like to say I don't really write about basketball. I write about a lot of people who happen to be employed by NBA teams. And it's a workplace just like any office. And there's infighting and and personality clashes like anything. And, um, you know, but you said about coming coming up with new info. Like, I I, I came from, you know, Roy said at the top, the pride of Cherry Hill High School East. I'm not the pride of Cherry Hill East, but I'm a I'm a product. I'm a, I'm, I'm a pretty good product, I think, of our high school paper, Eastside, that has been the best paper in New Jersey for a decade plus now. Partially because of 
the, the, the journalism advisor, Greg Gagliardi, who's one of the people the book is dedicated to. And he taught me and everybody, if you're going to, if you're going to report, if you're going to write news, if you don't have anything new, then you don't have a story. That's been my calling card, I think, throughout my career. And that's been, that's my big selling pitch on the book. Like I said, I think, you know, throughout this, there, there's a ton of new information that you're not going to find anywhere else. And, and I think that's the only way to do the job. Every, Everyone wants to be able to go into a locker room and talk to players and ask the coach a question post game. I get to actually do that. And in a sense, I like to think that, you know, I'm, I'm working for the fans kind of. And that kind of like leads me directly into my next question, because um, Howard Bryant, who may be the pride of Temple University, who knows? Um, he said he once said something along the lines of and I'm, you know, I'm misquoting here probably. But he said, you know, authors, you know, write books. Some authors uh, don't write books or don't write books to make money. They write books because they have something to say. And, you know, we've always, you know, we've seen all the hundreds of articles about, you know, tanking in the process and the debates on, you know, all the various shows. But I'm guessing that you, Jake Fisher, the pride of Cherry Hill East, you <laughs> felt that no one ever took the time to, to tell the story. Because that's, that's the reason why I'm assuming that you sat down to write this book during a pandemic, because you felt that this story hadn't been told correctly. Yeah, I mean, I do want to make money. I will say that. Um, <laughs> Please support it. Amazon.com, bookshop.org if you want to support a local bookseller, Barnes & Noble, Triumph, whatever. But I also, I'm trying to make enough so I can do this again and not work for a publication full-time and be able to tell stories, like you said, that I really want to you know, share more information about. And you know, coming up with Liberty Ballers and living in Boston and going to those tanking Celtics games, like I couldn't escape the topic. And whenever I wear, I wear an Eagles hat a lot to go back to, you know, talking about fandom around shoot arounds and whatnot when I don't want to do my hair in the morning. Um, and it's also kind of become like a little way to make people re- remember who you are. Um, and whenever other people find out I was from Philly or they would see that Eagles hat and be like, oh, are you from Philly? You know, tanking, blah, 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 blah. Few things in life really are polarizing. And in basketball and sports in general, people really either are for tanking or against it. And I wanted to sum, I wanted to summarize that, and I wanted to summarize how all these people swept the NBA and, and changed it forever in the way that we just talked about. Team building is just as important as the games. And I, from being on the ground and talking to those people, I, I knew there was so much more to, to humanize these characters, to learn that, you know, Sam Hinkie, as a, as a college student, to fulfill a negotiating requirement, he ordered 50 pizzas to a lecture hall and – it was packed with a hundred people or so. And he convinced the delivery kid to give it to them for free. Like details mm-hmm. like that details, like Brett Brown giving Dell Demps, the GM who traded for uh, Drew holiday with New Orleans before that he was a Spurs staffer when Brett was there before he got to Philly, they were in the pool giving each other swimming lessons and Evan Turner and Spencer Hawes getting drunk at Spencer, at, Evan, at Spencer Hawes's house in February 2014 because they, they got stuck in Philly due to inclement weather. Instead of meeting girlfriends in Puerto Rico, you know, they're drinking Spencer's last stash of his alcohol because they're going to get traded around the corner anyway. And they run out <laughs> of toilet paper and that, that leaves Evan in Spencer Hawes' bathroom rummaging through his cabinet and he finds that Barack Obama toilet paper that Evan right. put on Instagram. Those <laughs> types of stories, you know, I love figuring out what happened. And, you know, there's this great seen in LA where they only have like six players one night against Cleveland and Chris Kamen's laying out on the bench. Everyone remembers that meme going around. Like I found out how that came about and details from that locker room and how Steve Nash was 
ruled out and warming up and trying to convince the coaching staff to let him play, even though he wasn't active for the roster. Like all those types of details, those are all small things and a couple little examples. But mm-hmm. I, I love getting on the phone with these guys or walking up to them in their locker room or meeting up with them in their hotel lobby while they're in town and just actually finding out some cool stuff about them. So, so if you don't mind, let, let's talk about that for a second. Cause that's, to me, that's the whole fascinating part of the book, not just the stories themselves, but kind of like the process of putting it all together. Because like we said, you no know, pun like, intended. Exactly, yeah, no pun intended. But like you said, you've done over 300 interviews. Again, you have, you know, articles you've written for other places and notes, and I'm sure you've transcribed yourself to death, you know, over the last yeah. several years. I guess what's how how does that process go into putting that all like when you I guess when you get like an interesting nugget or a story or whatever is there like a folder on your computer like you know possible book like how does that kind of come together? So the short version of the long story is you know the book's going to cover Philly, Boston, L.A., uh, Phoenix, Orlando, Sacramento primarily through 2013, 14, 2015-16, 2014-15. I skipped so those three years. So I go on Black Basketball Reference and I list out every single person who was on that coaching staff and the roster. And then I, I listen, I list as many executives I know who might've been even around there, let alone, I know for a fact they were on that team. I try calling all of them and, you know, you go through their schedule on ESPN.com or whatnot and start reading all the game recaps um, very quickly from AP and like figure out some themes of the series through the season. If you remember and then when someone says a story like, oh, DeMarcus Cousins blew up at George Carl in the locker room in Cleveland, and, you know, we get Karan Butler's perspective of it, you write that down in your list of things to talk to the next person about. And at a certain point, and for me, I mean, my deadline, I had a deadline coming up at a certain point in, in June, on June 30th, 2020. So, like, I, I had to stop reporting along the way to actually get it done. But there's this trope in journalism and when you start hearing the same story a couple of times over again, that's when, you know, you kind of might have circled the wagons a bit. Yeah. You're never going to know everything, but maybe all everything you're going to be able to get. Um, and I, I, I transcribe, I, I think it's important to listen back and hear inflection in the people's voices. And sometimes, you know, you're getting ready to ask your follow-up question and you miss something they said. Um, and, um, you know, from there, I'm an, I'm an outline guy. I definitely like mm-hmm. to try to map out where the story is going to go and figure out how to transition from, you know, scene to scene or section to section, especially when you're jumping from Philly to Brooklyn to right. you know, Phoenix to wherever. And um, in the book, there's a lot of moments where, like, Philly will play the Lakers and then we'll pivot and we'll, we'll go into that arena with Philly and we'll leave with the Lakers and we'll mm-hmm. follow them for a week. So, um that's my that's my long answer. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a, that's an awesome answer. Um, just let me let me again put put my my genie hat on for a second. Let me because I, I know at some point we're going to get a, a paperback version of the book, the 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 unfiltered you know editor's cut or whatever the the, the Snyder cut, if you will, or the Fisher cut, I should say, of the <laughs> book. So if you could interview, if there's one person that you didn't get a chance to interview for this book that you'd like to talk to before that happens, is there anybody in mind? Hmm. Um. I talked to a lot of people. So yeah, you did. <laughs> um, I I didn't get to talk to Danny Ainge. I talked to him previously, um, and he's someone who you know, I'd be really curious to think what he thought of Sam, first of all, and you know how he really um, you know navigated Boston as much as Sam did did in Philly. Um, I mean, they made some pretty aggressive moves trading for Isaiah Thomas and trading away Rajon Rondo and 
you know, taking James Young at 17 was supposed to be this great pick, and that doesn't work out. Like, <laughs> I love James Young, by the way. Love them. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I mean, Boston's definitely been a trendsetter in a lot of things around the NBA. Like, they've kind of been – they're kind of the, the sneaky godfathers of the sign-and-trade, um, and they kind of were, were early adapters of the kind of hinky special type contract, the four-year non-guaranteed deal, just like Sam was. So – um, I, and, and Danny's a really, really smart guy. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, and I have talked to him in the past, so I, he would have been great to talk to. No, no, that, that, that would, that would have been an awesome, just to kind of get his perspective, because again, I know obviously with Sixers and Boston, the history they have, you know, and we, we've said a lot of things, you know, positive and negative in different ways about Danny Ainge, but you know, that, that, that would be nice to, to have his perspective on things. Um, just, just kind of in general, because here on, on 106.5, this is a community radio station. There's a lot of people who listen to this, a lot of people who have shows on the station who aspire to have a career in sports, whether it's, you know, a writer like you or a reporter like you, or a role in front of a camera, in front of a microphone. So just in general, and we'll get back to basketball in a second, but just in general, if you had any, um, a piece of advice, you know, for someone who wants to get into sports business, sports media business, what, what would you say to somebody kind of coming up right now? Uh, the advice is twofold. It's one Everyone, not everyone, but a ton of people want to do this, like you just said. So from the jump, you have to be willing to, to give it your all and, and, and fight and work hard and, you know, be able to take a no or, or, or walk into a closed door and not let that, you know, dissuade you from trying to go into another one. Um, and I think the, the best way to separate yourself from that in that competitive environment is to do something different and stand out. I mean, I, I, I talked about finding something new in your stories also, you know, you should find stories that other people aren't looking to tell. Like I always talk about when I was in Boston, you know, from the jump, a lot of the Celtics local media, not to not to criticize them, but Boston media seems very colloquial. And, and a lot of the local writers would just hang out in the home locker room. And I would walk up to people in the, in the away locker room unencumbered a lot of times. Like I was the first person really to write a national story about Devin Booker in the NBA. Same with Nicole mm-hmm. Jokic. And I tell this story all the time. With, when LeBron was, with, was still with Miami in 13-14, that final year when Greg Oden was on the team, um, everyone was surrounding LeBron's locker this one game. 45 people were all sticking a recorder in LeBron's face, getting the same exact thing. And I walked up to Greg Oden and talked to him for 10 minutes and wrote a story for Slam. I was 19 years old. And I got you know exclusive interview with Greg Oden, and no one had ever talked. No one had thought to talk to Greg Oden. Not to like give myself that much credit, but right. no one had thought to talk to Greg Oden that entire year yet about his comeback and about you know what it was like to be a number one pick to go out of the league to now you're on the the, the Heatles competing for a title. And it, I mean, I was able to. I got on the phone with Greg Oden last summer trying to do a documentary with him, and uh, you know, he remembered that story. So hmm. that's awesome. Um, I, th- I, th- I think looking uh, – some people call them side door stories or whatnot. I, th- I always try to tell people to look – to do something different and look for stories that other people aren't necessarily looking for. No, no I feel yeah. like – oh, sorry. Right now, I feel like human interest piece on athletes is just very fascinating in general because these people are looked at as superheroes. And they're looked at as like like, I don't know, above all. And a guy like Greg Oden, I mean like he – I mean, I would love to see a documentary on Greg, Greg Odom because, I mean, he was like people want to play re- revisionist history on that draft. He was he was the bona fide number one pick. Like it, like yeah. there shouldn't have been any debate on the Durant. Like I, I mean, he just suffered an unfortunate injury and derailed his career. 
Well, I'd like to make one on him. And uh, Greg Oden, if you're listening, <laughs> respond to my text, man. We had a great conversation last June. I thought we were on board. I want to tell your story. Let's do it together, Greg. Come on, man. <laughs> All right, we, we will do our part here on the Broadstreet Line to, to make that happen, the, the Greg Oden, uh, Jake Fisher documentary. But we have like two minutes left. Before we get you out of here, I need, I need to ask you one more question. Are we going to have a fully vaccinated parade this July in Philadelphia? I need to know. I mean, I'm ready to go, man. You let you let see, me know. See, this is good because he's not a fan. He's not a fan. I'm like, no. and, a fan. And, like, and when you're in Philly, you get a lot of, like, just, like, I don't know, like, I don't know, unbiased opinion. I, yeah. I need an objective opinion on this team. So I am fully vaccinated, so I can give you that. And okay. I do think that they will win the East. Okay. Um, that getting the one seed was absolutely massive. Brooklyn and, and Milwaukee are going to probably beat each other up in the second round. Philly's going to get the winner of, um, not the winner, yeah, the winner of the uh, eight, nine, ten game. So someone who is going to have to play two games in the playing tournament, then they're going to get them. Mm-hmm. Then they'll get you know, the winner of four or five, which will be like New York and Atlanta or something like that. Right. They're gonna they're gonna pretty much have a cakewalk to the conference finals, so they only really have to win one real series to get there. Mm-hmm. And I don't think either team in Milwaukee or Brooklyn really have an answer for Joel. Sure, the other teams have those teams have something too. Um, I'm confident they'll get out of the East from there. You know, we'll see who their matchup is. You know, if if it's Denver and and you know they've got a body to throw at Joel and Jokic and other big people, if it's the Lakers with their, you know, they got a lot of centers on that. Marcus has always been somebody, obviously, Philly uh, and Bita struggled with. It's going to depend on the matchup. And I honestly have zero opinion or insight as to who's going to win the West. Like, it could be any of the six teams, I really think. But I do think the Sixers make the finals. I'll, I'll give you that. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah, like, you didn't really answer the question the way I wanted you to. But that's fine. Though. That's fine. It's, it's, a, it's very unbiased opinion. And I, and I appreciate that. Again, Jake Fisher author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever, just released earlier this month. You can follow him on Twitter at Jake L. Fisher. Um, anywhere else they can catch you? I'm trying to figure out where all, where all your, your your links are. Yeah. Bleacher Report, what else you got? I'm, I'm at Bleacher Report once a week. The book is out anywhere. Books are sold. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm in full media media tour. <laughs> yeah, like I said, anyone who can, who can cop a copy, I greatly appreciate it because I'd love to – sink my teeth into another topic like this and put out another book in, you know, two, three years. Well, I just bought it this afternoon. So hopefully um, by the start of the fourth quarter when B-Ball Paul is playing, I will turn off the game (laughs) and start reading Jake Fisher's book. I love to hear that. Awesome, awesome stuff. Jake, thanks for joining us. Jake, thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys.
when I hear something amazing. Oh, and feel free to tell your friends too. So Kohl's, they're having a huge sale on summer stuff. And if you live for sunny days like I do, you need to check it out. I got 40% off a new patio set, Food Network grilling essentials for 20% off, and 50% off those yard games my kids won't stop talking about. Best part? I got an extra $10 off and some Kohl's cash. It almost makes being cooped up all winter worth it. Almost. Select styles. 10 off 25 offer valid May 27th through 31st. Some exclusions apply. See store or Kohl's.com for details. We live in a world where crime is ordinary. But in the world that ought to be, crime is never excused. The FBI needs experts from all backgrounds to create the world that ought to be. Visit fbijobs.gov forward slash radio.